for an example, if I have a classroom of 30 people, if one or two students fail, they gotta get left back, well, they didn't get it. You know, you know it happens, right? If five people fail, that's, that's noticeable. But if 66% of 30 people in the class fail, the question now, what is the teacher doing wrong? What's the curriculum doing wrong? What is the institution doing wrong? You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by Penn America. In the CUNY Law Review article, The Obscure Legacy of Mass Incarceration, Parole Board Abuses of People Serving Parole-Eligible Life Sentences, Alejo Rodriguez reported that a study of thousands of parole decisions from the past several years found that fewer than one in six Black or Hispanic men was released at his first hearing, compared with one in four white men. This massive disparity was found among people serving parole-eligible sentences for small-time property crimes. Yet for parole-eligible individuals convicted of a violent offense, there was a 90% denial rate across the board. This report helped expose systemic racial discrimination in parole decisions, as well as the parole board's blatant discriminatory practices against people accused of violent felonies an issue that Alejo Rodriguez, this week's guest on Temperature Check, works to change. Community liaison and assistant program developer for Exodus Transitional Community, Alejo Rodriguez works with individuals who are in re-entry transition in East Harlem and beyond. He commits to helping people reclaim the humanity denied by the justice system's discrimination by way of many different roles. As a public speaker, a published poet, an events organizer, teaching artist, and screenwriter, before working at Exodus, Alejo served as the mentor and alumni coordinator for the Prisoner Reentry Institute's College Initiative at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is also an executive board member of both the Parole Preparation Project and Network Support Services. Alejo holds a Master's of Professional Studies from New York Theological Seminary and a Bachelor of Liberal Arts degree from Syracuse University. I, Nicolette Natali, Penn America's Prison and Justice Writing Program intern, had the opportunity to ask Alejo about parole, reentry, and COVID in this week's episode of Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Hi, Alejo. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, how are you doing? How are you doing, Nicolette? Glad to be here. Um, yeah, uh, I was just wondering if, before we begin, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how your experiences have shaped the work that you do at Exodus Transitional Community. Okay, so um, my name is Alejo Rodriguez. I'm currently the Arts and Civic Engagement Coordinator at Exodus Transitional Community, which is a re-entry um, service provider for individuals coming home via Rikers Island, upstate New York, and we also just provide general services for individuals who had contact with the criminal justice system. Um, our founder actually did time and went through reentry himself in the, in the mid to late 90s and just was really moved and felt that it could be done a different way or have a different approach and strategy. It was coming from people who were directly impacted themselves. Mm-hmm. So today, I think the staff is approaching 50 people. I think 90% of these of, of our staff is formerly impacted by the uh, criminal justice system in one way or the other and or family members indirectly, um, including myself. Mm-hmm. So I came home in 2017 after serving 32 years in prison for a felony murder charge, mm-hmm. um, was denied parole, 
actually had an 18 year to life sentence and I was battling parole for, for approximately 14 years. Um, during that time, prior to even making my parole board, I had taken advantage while colleges were still available in prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up, you know, coming in there as a pretty much an unskilled high school graduate, right? Came to prison in 1985. By, by 19, no, by 2003, I had acquired a master's degree from New York Theological Seminary, had been published by PEN America in the work of doing time, 25 years of, of PEN Prison Writing Awards. Won several other awards since then, as well as just being published for my poems and other literary works. I most recently got published last year for an article called The Obscure Legacy of Mass Incarceration. So um, really been trying to be a, a part of this work, utilizing my own personal experience, but also learning from it too as well, and trying to help push the needle to create more justice and, and equity in the systems that tend to not really hear the voices of the people, and really actually, in my opinion, help to perpetuate if the concern is public safety or try to move people away from criminality, that the indirect discrimination, indirect, not really hearing people with their concerns, doesn't really, and I didn't say indirect discrimination, but discrimination is very direct, right? Mm -hmm. But the indirect, not hearing people, you know, an institutional discrimination actually perpetuates, in my opinion, criminality and causes people to, or can cause people to act other ways than we would want in society. Yeah. I actually had a a question stemming from the piece that you just alluded to. In your piece, you show beautifully how much you grew and changed while incarcerated, and yet you were continuously denied parole based on your conviction. And your experience, unfortunately, isn't an uncommon one. I was particularly struck by the sentence, New York State Board of Parole's disproportionate denial rates of parole against people convicted of violent offenses has less to do with public safety and more to do with the federal financial incentives offered to states to hold people convicted of violent offenses in prison longer. Could you talk about how this favoring of people with nonviolent charges is playing out during the pandemic and what we should be paying attention to in terms of the motivations for who is released and under what conditions? Sure. Well, you know, a little background in that statement that I've made and alluded to was in 1995 when um, President Clinton signed the crime bill, I think 94, 95 got passed. There was also the suggestion to keep people with violent felony offenses in longer. The Violent Offender Initiative Truth and Sentencing Act. And states were actually getting paid to keep people in who committed violence in prison longer. The thing about it is it wasn't a retroactive bill. Mm-hmm. But it was intended for, at that point there, Right, the way it's written from that point there, we would have a truth in sentencing, a lot of flat determinist sentences. But what states were doing, as I've shown in the paper, especially states like New York, they were actually, in order to justify the need of receiving federal fundings, because part of the bill that President Clinton had signed, there was a five year evaluation of states and how they were pretty much adhering to the, the, the new incentives. And they can get funding 
they can raise their funds from the feds during those five years and they didn't have to spend it all within five years. Like this was always going to be on their books. And so New York State ended up funding, or I should say padding their numbers by denying people retroactively who was not a part of that law. So there was a specific target against individuals who committed violent felony offenses. The irony of it is, and this is not to excuse or trying to justify or, or minimize the significance and the impact of violent offenses. Right? However, when we look at individuals or offenses that have a propensity to return back to prison for the same offense, people who committed murder have the lowest recidivism rate. Likewise, people in general who have committed some kind of violence had the lowest recidivism rate. So there was a clear intention that, if in anything, yet at the same time, and let me get my thoughts together on this one, at the same time, we have a national recidivism rate at over 66%, 66 going to 70%, depending on where you're at, but nationally at 66%. So if people who have committed murder have the lowest recidivism rate, who is actually recidivating most? And it's the individuals who committed non-violent offenses. Mm -hmm. So here it is, there was an intentionality to keep people in prison longer, but the people they were letting out were the people who were actually perpetuating more offenses in the street. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, it's a failure across the board, right? This is not to say violent offenders are better and non-violent offenders. I think it was across the board a failure because, for an example, if I have a classroom of 30 people, I'm in school, I'm teaching 30, if one or two students fail, they got to get left back, well, they didn't get it. You know, you know, it happens, right? If five people fail, that's, that's noticeable. But if 66% of 30 people in the class fail, the question now, what is the teacher doing wrong? What's the curriculum doing wrong? What is the institution doing wrong? So they begin to release individuals who have a higher propensity to return back and then reconvict them like they never really did the work with them to begin with. While the individuals who are in there longer, they tend to, some people will call it age out of crime, be a lot more remorseful about what they've done, you know, what got them into prison and have taken really strong initiatives to change that. And I think they're, like I said, their recidivism rate is the lowest. I think it's about 7%. And when you talk about, for example, someone who's been involved and a life was taken, people who have been convicted of murder have a less likelihood to recommit murder again. Like, if they do offend, it might be like a drug use. It would not be murder again. I mean, the likelihood of that is so minimal. And yet, states was able to keep people in longer had their books, get funding for it, while letting other individuals go who they not adequately prepared. So the individuals who benefited from the early release were the individuals who didn't have the proper tools for success to begin with. How does that relate today you were asking the question? What's happening now is individuals who are in prison the longest are individuals who are most vulnerable, more than likely have committed some form of violent felony offense, right? And will not have that opportunity. Though they fit in the category, because they were in the longest, the age range is, is probably higher and considered to be most vulnerable. 
individuals who've been in longer, they say after a person gets to be about 50, 60 years old, is, is as if their aging tends to accelerate. So a 55-year-old's physical health could be equivalent to a 60-year-old. So the individuals who are really most in need of attention or consideration for release are being overlooked based on their crime. And as if the virus doesn't apply to them. As if, you know, only because a person has a nonviolent offense that they are better suited to be released and the virus would not have the same kind of impact. Like they're the only one, oh, no, I should say that, that they're the only ones worth saving. Because that's essentially what they're saying, that only people would not, and it's still, I get the concerns, and this is not to minimize once again, especially people and family members who they feel they've been a victim of a violent family offense, but we still have to grapple with this issue. Yeah. Something that's been sticking out to me is like when talking about the release of people who have been convicted on nonviolent offenses and are vulnerable is like the overlooking of people who have been convicted on violent offenses and are vulnerable. But it's like this kind of language that suggests that they can't be vulnerable, which is really, I think, dehumanizing. Right, right. Yeah. So I wanted to switch over to some of the work that Exodus is doing right now. As part of a temporary solution to address the heightened vulnerability of people who are being released from Rikers Island, Exodus has been working with the mayor's office to provide hotels as a form of housing, which is a gigantic task. While you're not directly involved in providing support to people coming home to life in a repurposed hotel, I was hoping you could share some of the insights of the Exodus staff doing this work. Yeah, so of course this pandemic came out literally out of nowhere, out of thin air, right? It is not something that anyone was really prepared for. And to my understanding, the people from Mock J, the mayor's office of criminal justice, was a part of initiating this program. So it wasn't as if Exodus initiated this program. And they released a number of individuals who were soon to be released or were being detained and waiting for some type of judgment. So there's a specific category. There were some individuals there who they were there for a technical parole violation. They weren't able to make their appointment or had a change of address that didn't properly inform the parole officer at that time. So they were sentenced, they got violated for parole, was told to do 60 days, 90 days, whatever, and their time had got cut down. And so these are the kind of individuals that got released. However, we're not dealing with all the individuals that were released due to these circumstances. Primarily, what we find is the individuals who we're providing housing for are individuals who were diagnosed as being positive for COVID or have been exposed to COVID. So we're also managing individuals who are in isolation. Some people were exposed are still in Rikers Island, but the ones they released, if they had exposure, they needed to be isolated. So we have rooms that we're managing for them. We also have several rooms that's provided to COs, correctional officers who had been exposed so they can have opportunity to be isolated for 14 days and we can find their situation. The majority of individuals though, that we, we are serving besides those two areas that I mentioned, were individuals who primarily were homeless before they even went in. Like they have no other place to go or had no other place to go. 
And so it started out with approximately, I think, 70 people, maybe near 100. We're currently serving a little over 200 people in two different hotels. And this is just primarily serving the individuals from Manhattan. There's other individuals from different boroughs that need to be attended to as well. A lot of individuals are dealing with mental health issues. Like the majority of the individuals were homeless and suffering from mental health issues. So having access to medications is very critical. And yet they were released without having access to a pharmacy to get their mental health meds. So part of our role is to manage their needs while they're in a hotel because the hotel is still operating and so it is not for the hotel managers to manage the needs of the individuals dealing with re-entry we've taken on that specific task we also have a relationship the state i mean the city actually hired a security firm that's there if anything else the hotel feels that someone's there to be in control so because we as a re-entry organization is not going to do the policing we think human first, right? We think humanity first, people first, mm -hmm. not policing first. And this is not a slight against policing, but that's not our job. So with that, we've also received a number of donations, clothes primarily, food, masks, cosmetics, undergarments for men and women. We also help to manage the distribution of those, rationing them out, especially with the cosmetics and things. So people, they're just coming home, have no money, so we want to make sure that they still have those basic needs met. We take individuals to, like I said, get their meds. And some individuals had went in and they were all in a methadone program. And so a number of the programs have kind of like been shut down because of COVID. There's not a lot of inpatient programs at best. And so we've helped to navigate where individuals can find the kind of treatment they need so they can continue with their programming. Yeah. I also had a question regarding... Exodus's Reentry Wilderness Program, which is a program that provides support to formerly incarcerated people during the job application process. I was wondering how the services that are part of that program are currently being provided. And during a time that's hard for anyone to get a job, what are the additional barriers to justice-involved individuals receiving job offers? Yeah, so, okay, so a little background with the reason why we call it wilderness. So our name is Exodus right? And it's drawn from the story of Exodus, the biblical story, the idea of making this transition from bondage into freedom. And in following that same narrative, there's this time period in which the people was wandering in the wilderness in order to find land and find their space where they could carve out for themselves. The thinking is that the transition of reentry is similar to that. Simply coming home and providing individuals with a job opportunity, housing, like these things are essential, but a person can actually receive, in our experience, a person can actually be aligned with those services and still feel alienated, still not feel like they have arrived or they landed or they actually transitioned or reintegrated into society. They can still feel isolated. So we kind of like speak to that moment where there's this transition that you're working towards your services again to attain your success and your reintegration. But that area of reentry is similar to being in the wilderness. You're mm -hmm. still trying to find your way. And when people, and this is not just people in prison, when people are kind of feeling like out of their place, kind of find their way, they're probably most vulnerable to making bad decisions, right? I like to equate it sometimes from the feeling I had from going to junior high school to high school. 
I was the big man in, in junior high school. And then I go to high school, I'm, like, I'm the nobody. Like, <laughs> and then you do the same thing from high school to college and then from college to adulthood. And now you're in society and you got to make money and you got to pay bills and you're stepping out of your parents' house. Like, hell, like I'm in the wilderness. I don't know what I'm doing, right? Somebody direct me. So it's that. And it's shown that that's why people say a lot of times the brain is still developing at 25, right? Because it's processing that. How do I find my space? Well, the reentry process is partly like that, you know? So we call it the wilderness. We provide resources and it has placed a strain because of COVID because of social distancing. We don't want to expose anybody. We might, as it known, there's some people who are carriers that don't know. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just this big scare. It affects people differently and there's no telling and there's no guarantee how the next person is going to be affected. So there was a big scare and it affected our classroom size. You know, some individuals was coming to our group on the average, I would say 10 to 15 people every week. Some weeks it might, it might dip down like seven but on average you know but 10 to 15 and we had to actually space those out in order to adhere to social distancing and even though now we have a very large room that can help support that we've also had moments where some facilitators held part of the practices or some of the training we trained individuals to deal with resumes for an example like some of that was things that can be done paperwork wise is doing online now, we will give a space because if some individuals come home may not even know how to deal with technology. So we will give a space for them and also have computers that they can work on it together via social distancing. Another thing that I learned, because we also have a wellness project, and the wellness project is our chemical dependency treatment program. It's an outpatient. So in order to, once again, adhere to social distancing, some of the thoughts were maybe we can have like half the group in class and half out class remotely. And, you know, we were hearing from the participants, though, they really appreciate us keeping it going. They really wanted to be able to be present inside the group, especially when social distancing is pretty much turned into another form of isolation in everybody's housing. And then some people don't have regular housing, even if they're in a, in a shelter or a halfway house. They're getting kicked out like at least a third of the day, two thirds of the day. They have to be out of the, the environment. They can only come there to sleep. So coming to... Exodus, in many respects, was a refuge for many individuals because we also provide a breakfast, a humble breakfast in the morning when people come. We also provide a humble lunch, you know, but enough to make sure people have some nutrition so they don't have to worry about where I'm going to eat. So we've created a shelter helping to create a whole new culture. So it's not just you're here taking a program, but you're here and you're part of a community. It's a struggle currently, to my understanding, we're the only re-entry organization open during the pandemic. A lot of the other, and this is not no slight, I'm not trying to say we're better than anybody because some people have taken other options and doing things remotely. So this is not trying to throw any other organization under the bus. We all work together in our own way. Got a very good network and I really appreciate their work. But our doors have been open. I was just thinking about what you were saying with like writing resumes and doing cover letters and how that's something that you, you know, do usually on the computer because there's been like a lot of coverage in in New York State about how parole check-ins have been moved online or over the phone for the time being. And we know that prisons are often technology deserts and after serving long sentences, those returning home can find it difficult and adapting to the pace at which technology on the outside has moved. Is this technology gap creating additional vulnerabilities for people who might be struggling with online parole check-ins? 
like for example are you seeing technical parole violations like missing an appointment because of issues with technology leading to rearrest or other punitive responses i myself haven't and mm -hmm. i don't think that's been anything that we've occurred so far you know even with parole this whole thing with dealing with covid is brand new so different parole officers have different strategies and people have different type of parole commitments. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has the same exact parole commitment when they first come home. Some people might be seen every 30 days. Some people might be seen every two weeks, right? Depending upon, you know, your offense, your sense of accountability, all these things play a part of it. And at the same time, for everybody, this idea of dealing with the pandemic has been kind of scary. So parole officers, you know, they're people too, yeah. they're families too, you know, and so I'm sure they kind of figure out systems in a way to best serve and stay safe, right? And keep the public safe, right? Their own individual safety in terms of the virus being exposed and likewise, you know, um, keeping the public safe. That's part of their job. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to say that they've been lenient. But it's clear that a number of institutions, because of the pandemic, has been willing to make adjustments in how they do their work as they try to find a way to navigate through this. I also just wanted to talk about that you're an executive board member of the Parole Preparation Project. I was hoping you could share a bit of context about that project and how COVID-19 poses particular challenges. Like, has the lack of volunteer face-to-face -face support affected parole opportunities at this moment? So the Parole Prep Project started out, I think, in 2013. And the concept was to help provide parole preparation support for individuals who have served long-term sentences. Individuals who have been disconnected from society the most was really in need of having some type of social support and or connections to support their not only support their release but support their transition mm -hmm. right to get acclimated gradually to society and so what the parole prep project does is pretty much put together what is known as a, a parole portfolio a parole packet the parole packet contains a compilation of letters of support an outline of a person's accomplishments whatever certificates they may have gathered while they were incarcerated. And these documents, the individual has every right to submit to his corrections counselor so that it's in their file, right, to show that there's consistency. From my experiences, though, a lot of times when we share it with the corrections officer, it's put all in one folder and it's not necessarily delineated as the different subjects that might be required. In other words, you can have a letter of support on one page. I mean, you know, one's letter of support right next to a certificate, right next to, that. It's, it's a hodgepodge. So the portfolio, the purpose of the portfolio is to, you know, make it interview friendly. So they want to know, do you have a place to stay? They know exactly where to go. It's delineated. Do you have a job proposals? It's all right there. It's explained, self-explanatory. Um, and then the beauty about the project is it operates with their volunteers. And so it's the volunteers who go to facilities and they actually visit guys who their clients would be, men and women, and helping them to prepare for their release. And they sit down and start to get to know the person. So it's not just a quantitative presentation of here's your parole packet done. They actually get to know the person over a course. We like to make it about the course of a two-year process because the very same volunteer, they too are going to do an introductory letter into the portfolio and they can speak to 
who is it they met? So that's the premise. And, and to my understanding right now, we have over 400 volunteers. And usually volunteers will go in groups of two, two to three sometimes, to meet one client. And of course, because of social distancing and institutions being shut down, that has been eliminated. So a lot of this, if any conversation has been happening, it's happening over the phone or via letter. And, you know, we're just trying to make the adjustments, but there's nothing replacing face-to-face conversations. But the work is still happening. Another thing that we do, we've been very fortunate to be able to get donations to help many individuals in prison struggling finances to get cosmetics sometimes, to get other nutritious options from commissary besides what they're serving in the mess hall. And so we've been getting donations and we've been able to send to our clients sometimes food packages up to 35 pounds a month. We're able to also send them some money at times, anywhere between 25 to 50 hours, depending upon the situation, to help individuals, you know, ease their mind. Someone's there that cares, you're supported, you belong. So many of these things are so critical. It's the unwritten, but yet concrete aspect of making the transition as necessary. The sense of belonging, the sense of feeling committed and, and, and that you have support, that you have a network. The, it's just general socialization. We tend to minimize the value of this and we just want to quantify everything. Oh, you got this program done, you got this, you got that. And sometimes, just those programs in and of itself is, is not sufficient. Pulling the lens out from your perspective, what do you think the most important aspects of the pandemic are as it relates to reentry? Wow, that's a huge question. Because often I'm hearing that like some men are in prison, not even, there's some facilities. And so it's really inconsistent how some of the facilities have been operating. They've been operating under their own authority and some facilities are provided with masks, some aren't. Some people are getting masks just when they go home. Some people in some facilities, if one person in that dorm is exposed, the whole dorm is locked in together now. And so it's really difficult because we don't know. We can easily say it was just best to let everybody out. We'd love for that to happen, right? But what would that look like? Do we have a place for them to go? So there are other questions that go along with that. But in terms of dealing specifically with reentry, the idea of giving individuals maybe, let's say, quarantined, maybe two weeks before they're released, right? Offering them, the, and not so much in isolation where they're like in special housing unit away from everybody, but a place where they can begin to process their transition before they left, provide them with support upon their release, establishing pickups for individuals. There's some people being released all the way from upstate New York and you're just told to get on the bus and for eight hours, like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Typically, individuals are supposed to get $40 and or a bus ticket. If they save anything, that's great, but they have gate money. So at the minimum is $40 and anything else is something that you save. This determination was made in 1977. So $40 in 1977, you might get like two bags of Eat well, right? That $40 may be worth $15 today. And this is what they're being offered with their bus ticket to a world that's dealing with social distancing, that's dealing with this pandemic. Like, where's the coaching come? One of the things that really I didn't realize with myself when we first started with social distancing as an Afro Latino, as appearing as a black man in this country, I had difficulty putting a mask on. 
Because for me, putting a mask on is an invitation for police to say, hey, what you doing, right? To be viewed as a, a, a suspect. And there's been cases of a young man seen not too, not too long ago on TV, having a mask on in a store and security following him wherever he went, a young black man. No one else in the store doing it, right? And all he's doing is trying to hear is social distancing. So I was triggered. All those feelings of what it was like to have to walk down, you know, in a prison yard and wondering if the prison guard's going to pull me over and tell me to get against the wall. Just because I had this mask on. And some individuals, when I bring it up in conversation that way, a lot of guys and women be like, oh shit, I felt that way too. I didn't know what that feeling was, but you're right. They had to get over it, but they acknowledge that that awareness did exist. What if someone just came home? Like, I've been home now. I've been blessed. I've been home now for three years. I got a sense of knowing what it is to walk through the streets and, and show some accountability and, and show where my intentions are through my word. But what if a person just come home and no, and everybody feels like no one knows them? Um, no one knows me and I have a mask on? So how do you coach? I'm not saying that's going to be critical. I'm not saying it's a breaking point for anybody. But I am saying that it's worthy of investing in just checking in with people about these things, about social distancing and stuff. So I think those are the kind of things that it has an impact in reentry that no one's really even had the time, you know, at best, at best. No one's even had the time to synthesize through those nuances. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like what you're saying and like, you know, wearing a mask and doing something that's like within everyone's collective safety, but then still like having people be suspicious of you. It's awful. And it's so racially broke, and it gets perpetuated in communities as well. It's not something that just started in prison, right? I've been experiencing this as a youth. And so putting on a mask sometimes just brings a lot of all that up. Like as one of the, the wrapping questions for our interview, I was wondering, um, for those who have some time or money to support reentry services or are interested in getting involved in advocacy, what are some recommendations you have? Time is just as valuable as, as money. You know, the idea of building community, working towards building community right now is probably one of the most critical investment that can be made. You know, we're also right now, I know we're dealing with the COVID, we had spoke about this, but we're also in the middle of a number of riots that are taking place in the country. And, and clearly, it's not something that money can fix, right? There's a significant aspect of equitable, like financial equity that needs to be addressed. There's no doubt about that. But this idea of community building, engagement, forming alliances, you know, one of the things I've always said when I was in prison, I realized that when I took advantage of my college education, I realized that more than the grades itself, there's something that was happening within the classroom. There's a socialization that was happening within the classroom, a sense of accountability and trust that I had the opportunity to carve out for myself by being on time with my papers, by answering questions, right, assignments. Like I had ownership and I carved out the relationship with my teacher. And then it translated into my relationship with my peers. We also began to know how to process conflict without always have to say, you know, get away from me, I'm not talking to you, right? Or even get into a fight. We began to process conflict with the shared intention that we're trying to get better. I think that socialization is just a critical aspect of education, especially for those in prison, than the grades itself, than the degree itself. 
especially when we're talking about wanting to support an individual's successful reentry into reintegration and, and security inside society. So I think the same thing applies here. You know, now in this time of, of unrest, people become woke maybe because of social distancing for so long. And the same thing that has transpired is like enough's enough. Right? So there's so much. And you know, we know it's, it's all stemming from the recent murders from George Floyd and the other sister's name, Brianna from Kentucky. I forget her last name right now. Taylor. Yeah, Brianna Taylor. So we know where the recent spark has come from, but it's been the same treatment. Sometimes it's really blatant, but most times it's very benign, very subtle, that creates more hostility, a very benign hostility. I think now it's just become crystallized because of COVID and, and people just woke. And one of the things that really could help is just take some type of initiative in building community, getting to know across races each other, across classes, get to know how to have conflict with someone without having to hate them, right? These type of things. I'm not, I'm not promoting that we all got to sing a song. And all <laughs> I'm not promoting that. Mm-hmm. In my family, we argue. We argue, but I'm not going to let nobody else argue with him going down the street. Nobody's going to be able to beat up my little sister because I'm mad at her type thing, right? Yeah. So building community, investing time, you know, our doors at Exodus Transitional Community. We're in East Harlem, on 3rd Avenue between 123rd and 124th Street. You're more than willing to come in if you have specific tools, skills, you know, job interviewing, if you want to teach a financing class, a literacy class. You know, we can always try to find ways to get the community involved. You can always just get in contact with me. You can first look us up, www.etcny.org. Check this out. We got a page that speaks about our work that we're doing in hotels as well. Mm-hmm. You can always get in contact with me, uh, my email, arodriguez at etcny.org. But in, and if you are not in the area of Exodus, you might be in other parts of the other outer boroughs, whatever. We're connected with a lot of other networks. Where it's, this is a movement. And if people want to get involved and build community and if they want to do it where they're living at, and that's what we promote, do it where you're living at, then we can connect you. I'll be more than glad to connect. I want to connect. Matter of fact, that would be my job <laughs> to connect. So if people want to get involved, reach out. Money is great. Right? Money is great. We take funds and all that, donations. But giving your time to is just as valuable. Yeah, I completely agree. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Other than the fact that I really just appreciate this time. And I want to thank PEN America for putting this together. And your executive director, Kate, always support the work that she's been doing. She's been there. I've always supported PEN America. You know, I know they support the people inside. And, uh, you know, it's really about how PEN America has always been very good at utilizing their literary strength to build a gap. And I like to say even to write through the walls. I, I, I used to actually say I would like to feel like my pen was the sledgehammer to kind of like break my way out through the walls. But literally that through literacy and through literary works, PEN America has always made themselves available. And I would love to continue to work with them and finding new ways in which we can reach inside and, and connect with the people utilizing the, the tools of today. 
right? If it's technology, if it's engagement, whatever, we'd love to have that kind of conversation to really use the tools of today to create a new form of engagement. Thank you so much for, for talking to me today and for all your, your insights and your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was a great interview. I really appreciate it. Thank no you. one listens to me that long, you know? So <laughs> I attention. I really appreciate it. You can read Alejo's article, The Obscure Legacy of Mass Incarceration, Parole Board Abuses of People Serving Parole-Eligible Life Sentences on the CUNY Law Review's website or on Exodus Transitional Communities' website under Latest News Stories. While on Exodus's website, be sure to check out their Ways to Help page, which includes sponsorships, partnerships, volunteer opportunities, and item donations. Similarly, the Parole Preparation Project is accepting volunteer applications for their October 2020 training for those in the New York metropolitan area. More volunteer opportunities can be found in this issue's Advocacy, Action, and Resources Roundup. This episode was researched, hosted, produced, and mixed by myself, Nicolette Natali. I received generous edits to my questions from PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program Director, Kate Meisner, and audio editing guidance from PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program Manager, Robert Pollock. Prison and Justice Writing Program intern, Brookie McLevine, wrote the introduction for this episode. Thank you for listening.